Well, good morning, everyone. Hello, hello. You can make your way to your seat. That would be great. Well, my name is Pastor Curtis, and I'm just uh, honored to welcome you all here today. Um, we were going to be starting Revelation this week, but we are starting Daniel instead. And um, <laughs> so, uh, but, but Revelation is coming soon after Daniel. So we're going through the book of Daniel, um, partly because it sets up Revelation quite well. There's a lot that uh, gives us a key into understanding Revelation through the book of Daniel. So it's going to be really great. Um, the title of today's message is God is Still on the Throne. And uh, so we're going to be going through Daniel 1 today. Um, the first six chapters of Daniel are heavily story-oriented. They're about Israel in captivity uh, in Babylon. And the last six chapters are heavily prophetic. So uh, Daniel gives us one of the most detailed uh, prophecies about Jesus' coming and who Jesus is and what he came to do. And uh, critics, it's so detailed and so accurate that critics, their only way to handle it is to say, oh, Daniel must have been written after Jesus came. That's their only recourse. And we know that Daniel was written somewhere around 600 years before Jesus came. Um, in, and we, we can verify this by a couple of different uh, secular historically verified documents. One of them is the Septuagint, which was in 300 BC. And um, this was when the biblical texts were translated from Hebrew to Greek, um, and Daniel is included in those texts. The other time is when Alexander the Great was on his conquest coming through um, the, the Middle East. And as he was making his way to Jerusalem, I'll just read this quote from Dr. J. Vernon McGee about um, Alexander the Great's uh, his, entry, his coming to Jerusalem. So uh, coming to, he came into the east in 334 BC, just for reference. So it says, when Alexander's invasion reached the near east, Jadua, the high priest, went out to meet him and showed to him a copy of the book of Daniel, in which he was clearly mentioned. Alexander was so impressed by this that instead of destroying Jerusalem, he entered the city peaceably and worshipped at the temple. So Daniel was already written at that time, obviously. So we have these two, and those are just two of the historically verified documents that are secular sources that tell us that Daniel was written uh, well before Jesus came on the scene. And we can already look at Daniel and see that much of his prophecy has been fulfilled. So an incredibly important book to understanding Revelation. It's an amazing book. So Daniel confounds the critics because of its exact, precise prophesying. And no, it's interesting to me because no other religious writings include this kind of prophecy in them. And the reason why is because they know that they're false, right? A, a book would not, if, they, if it's just a man writing it, they would not prophesy about something specific in the future because as soon as that event comes, it's all debunked, right? Daniel is very specific about what it prophesies and it has been accurate in everything that has come to pass. The Bible is one-fourth prophecy and uh, other texts, other religious texts, there may be 
you know, a, an utterance of prophecy that's very vague, whereas Daniel is very exact. And it's just such an incredible book. So we're excited to jump into it. I'm going to start this morning by reading all of Daniel 1, and then we're going to walk through it together. So, Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace in whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And to them the king of uh, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking young, uh, the, looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter, and tested them ten days. At the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh. What a compliment. Then all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portions of delicacies and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of these days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding, about which the king examined them, 
he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. We offer it to you. Um, We just ask that you'd speak to each one of our hearts about this passage. Help us to take away what we need to. Help us to learn what we need to. And help us to worship you and glorify you even more than we have so far. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want you to close your eyes again. And I want you to imagine that you're living in a world that is opposed to the God we serve. I want you to imagine... (laughs) Thank you. I want you to imagine... That we live in a world where the traditions and customs of our faith are are not acknowledged in our culture. And that our values in our culture are opposed to God's values. Now you can open your eyes. See, we don't have to imagine it at all, right? (laughs) We're right here. We're living in that kind of world. So what are we going to learn through this book of Daniel? What can we learn through the book of Daniel and why do we have the book of Daniel? Well, everywhere around us, we're faced with the fact that this is not our home. This broken, sinful world is not our destination. Daniel's book gives us great insight into how we are to live practically in this foreign land. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. This is how we are to view ourselves in this world. We are to view ourselves as strangers and aliens to it foreigners in a distant land, and pilgrims just passing through. We have always been living in a foreign land. Did you know that? We've always been in a foreign land. It just seems as the decades and the years go on that we can tell a little bit more, right? We're feeling the ramifications of it. We can, we can see it a little bit more. And so we've ridden the pendulum swing all the way over to secular progressivism, and we are feeling the effects of that. And in this point in Daniel, right where he picks up, there would have been an immense feeling of, where is God? Jerusalem had been captured by Babylon, and their home was destroyed. Where is God? Articles of their temple that were meant to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were taken by King Nebuchadnezzar and brought into the temple of a pagan god and set up as a trophy to mock God, to mock the the God of Israel. And it's interesting because this was done in the very place. Did you notice that? It's done in the land of Shinar. Does anyone recognize that place, the name? The same place where this took place, where he, he brought the Israelites uh, the, the articles that were in their temple and set them up as a tribute to his pagan god was the same place where the Tower of Babel was built. When we see that the people rejected God and said, we will build our own empire. We don't need your God. We don't need the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's the same exact place. In Genesis 11, 1 through 2, it says, Now the whole world had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Later they would build the Tower of Babel there. So in that very place where it had been declared, we will build our own empire, 
Nebuchadnezzar is setting up these articles to, that were initially meant to worship the God of Israel to lay at the feet of this pagan God to say, look, we've defeated the God of Israel. This would have been a crushing blow to any Israelite. They would have recognized this, they would have known the area, and they would have seen all of this for what it was. They would have thought, where is our God? Our God has been defeated. Where is our God? Our brightest children have been taken away. The children from Judah, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, it's a royal line, right? So that royal line is where they took the children from, and they took them into captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar put an exclamation point on his defeat of Israel by bringing in these children into his, uh, into, under his rule um, and taking them out of their home. So not only did he do the, the thing with the, you know, the articles that were in you know, God's temple and then bringing them before a pagan god, but he puts an exclamation point by taking the children away. And I kind of picture this in my human mind of if you had a football game going on and a team was up by 40 and there was 10 seconds left in the game and everyone thought, oh, they should just knee it because that would be the sportsmanlike thing to do. But at the last minute, they throw a Hail Mary and somebody catches it in the end zone and he does an end zone dance right in front of the team that they were just already destroying, right? So that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He was gloating over them. So they had carried the best of the next generation into captivity to be assimilated into Babylonian culture. They made their statement, and not only did Nebuchadnezzar do those things, but he also said that he would use these young boys, train them up to advance and benefit his agenda. So these, these boys, they were taught the Babylonian language, they were stripped of their names, right? They were stripped of their names that the Lord, that all of their names were glorifying of God. So they were stripped of their names that glorified God, and they were given names that worship pagan gods. So uh, Daniel initially meant, the name Daniel means God is my judge. He was given the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel's prince. The name Hananiah means beloved of the Lord. He was given the name Shadrach, meaning illuminated by sun god. Mishael, meaning God, uh, who is as God, was changed to Meshach, which means who is like Shaq, which some believe was a Babylonian, not, not Shaq, like, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but, you know, the Babylonian goddess corresponding to Ishtar or Venus. So the name Azariah, the last one was, the Lord is my help. And his name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nego. So they were all changed from names that would worship the Lord to names that would worship this pagan God. So where was God in the midst of this terrible assimilation of God's people in a pagan godless culture? These boys were at a young age. Um, they're estimated to have been between the ages of 15 and 20, which we all know that we were making our best decisions at that point in our own lives. Um, so they're thrown into this incredibly difficult situation at this very difficult age as well. And um, so how would these young boys respond in the midst of this difficult scenario? 
And we see in verse 8 that, that it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. See, Daniel in this situation, he could have said, I'm in a distant land. I don't want to rock the boat. He could have said, is this really the hill I'm willing to die on? He could have said, I'm just a teenager. What can I do? He could have said, I'm just a captured prisoner of war. What can I do? He could have said, I'll just go along with it because if I keep my mouth shut, then maybe I'll have some influence in this pagan culture and I'll just be quiet about it. And then maybe later on down the road, I will have some influence that I can speak into them. No, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. You might ask yourself, why did they decide to put their foot down at this point, right? They, they had already been transplanted to a new place. They had already changed their language. They had already changed all their routines. They had already changed their names. Why was this the point that they chose, I can go no further? They drew a line in the sand. They said, I can go no further. And the reason they, they couldn't eat or drink from what the king had offered them was because that food had been offered to that pagan god. So eating and drinking that food and that wine would have been participating in the worship of that pagan god, joining in in the worship of them. And Daniel recognized this and he said no. So Daniel goes to one man, right? He goes to the chief guy. He goes to him and says, hey, uh, can I eat vegetables and water instead? And the guy says, no, my head, I'm not going to stick out my neck for you. And so Daniel goes to another guy. He had purposed in his heart. He didn't just stop with that. He went to another guy and said, hey, I want, this is what I want to do. And the man granted it. He had purposed in his heart. How did Daniel at this age, have such mental fortitude? How was he so strong of mind and heart that he would stand his ground in the midst of this situation? I think the answer to that is he had good discipleship, probably from his parents. Their response does not just happen out of thin air. These, these young boys don't just end up in a foreign area, foreign customs, foreign language, all of that, and just all of a sudden start making wonderful choices, right? They had that decision in their heart. And they also had good discipleship. As that's why they had that decision in their heart. And we can see this in our, in our culture right now. As soon as you, you know, you could, um, as soon as you send off a kid into college in the real world, um, a lot of times, when they encounter the slightest resistance to their faith, it crumbles and they walk away from God. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. These four men, we can assume, were trained up in the way that they should go by their parents. The evidence number one, the reason why I think they did, is because they had names that glorified the Lord, right? Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, beloved by the Lord. Mishael, who is as God. Azariah, the Lord is my help. Not only their names, but they also had virtue that spoke to that, right? They had virtue and good decision-making that spoke to the fact that they probably had good parents. Not only that, but 
um, at the time that Daniel was born, there was a big revival going through, sweeping through the people of Israel. So his parents were most likely positively affected by that revival going on. So we can assume based on those three things, I think that they had good parental guidance. So in order to be able to stand in a culture that's anti-God and anti-Godly values, we have to be vigilant about our discipleship. Not just about parents discipling their kids, but about um, everyone being discipled and discipling one another. We have to be vigilant about it. We don't just end up making good decisions. We are not that great. (laughs) Proverbs 22.6 again says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. When you think of the word train, it kind of implies work, right? Training involves work. And I imagine that if I walked down to the pit down here um, and told them, decided I want to be a, a world champion MMA fighter. And so I walked in there and I said, hey, make me an MMA fighter. I want to be a world champion. Um, but I only have five minutes in each evening to work on it. Um, I imagine that they would turn me away and say, no, that's not how it works. You need to be committed. You need to work on it. You need to be able to train. And training is hard work, right? When we are parenting our children, we should be prepared that it is training. It's hard work for the parent and for the child. Like, we have to put in the work. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even till the end of the age. Teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. We're called to disciple. So it's important for us to understand the context we're living in, right? When we go to disciple someone, we can't uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be different depending on your circumstance. So in our world, we are living in a godless world. We're living in a world where it is combative toward our faith and toward our belief system and toward God himself. So we have to be vigilant about our discipleship. We can't be lackadaisical about it. Um, we can't disciple our kids as if we're living in a Christian nation and we can ship them off to Sunday school and do our five-minute prayer routine before bed each night and call it good. See, the majority of the young men who were taken into captivity, that you know what they said? They said, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do, right? They, they did exactly what they were asked to. They ate the meat, they ate the, or they drank the wine. And our children will do the same if we do not train them up in the way they should go. We are living in an anti-Christian culture. We need to be watchful and careful about everything that's influencing us and our kids. All of the young men who were taken into captivity were raised in the same God-fearing nation, but their faiths were not all the same. So why did Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah stand strong? Because of their discipleship. Many other young men did not purpose in their hearts to not be defiled. Matthew seven thirteen through 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way 
which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The result of the training up that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah experienced was that they stood strong and they were faithful to God in the midst of very difficult circumstances. They were faithful in the midst of their environment changing, their status changing, their clothes changing, their native language changing and being stripped away. Their customs and godly heritage were stripped away. Their names were replaced with names that honored pagan deities. Yet they purposed in their hearts not to defile themselves because they knew one thing. They knew one thing. That God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne no matter if I'm in captivity. (laughs) God is still on the throne. When everything was stripped away, they realized that God is still on the throne. When the people of Israel thought that their God had been defeated and their precious articles from their temple were laid at the feet of a pagan God, Daniel reveals to us that God's hand was in the whole thing. He was in it all. In Daniel 1, 2, we read that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into their hands. God's hand right there. Daniel 1.9, now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. He, God brought him there, God's hand. Daniel 1.17, as for these young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and literature and wisdom. God's hand right there. God was on the throne the whole time. So how do we raise our children and disciple others so that they will purpose in their hearts to follow God no matter what the world looks like around us. I think it means we need to teach them that God is on the throne. We need a model for them. God is on the throne. When I have a bad day, God is on the throne. When we're, un- when we're successful and doing wonderful and flourishing, God is on the throne. When we're tempted, God is on the throne. When we fail, God is on the throne. When we're persecuted for our faith, God is on the throne. When we doubt, God is on the throne. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 8-9, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, yet not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why was Paul able to have this perspective? Because God is still on the throne. And when we disciple and raise up the next generation, we release them out, we need to trust God is still on the throne. And you know, there's another time in the Bible where it looked like all was lost. It looked like hope was lost. It looked like God was defeated and the Messiah who they had trusted in and thought would be the Messiah was hung on a tree and killed. God is a professional at taking what looks to others like a fatal blow and turning it around to display his greatest victories. Because no matter what our human minds see around us, no matter what we're seeing, God is still on the throne. So there's this great passage I came across in my uh, devotions that I'm just going to read this morning. It's 1 Samuel 5. It says, When the Philistines took the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, they brought it into the house of Dagon, a pagan god, and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in place again. 
And when they rose earlier, early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both of its palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. No matter what things we face in our culture, no matter what we feel like, if we feel like God's been defeated, we can know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you remember when Jesus was on trial at the Sanhedrin and uh, the Jewish court of law and they're pressing Jesus, right? They say, tell us if you're the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus responds and says, it is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power coming on the clouds of heaven. In that time, every Jewish person in that room would have recognized that phrase it was code word. Jesus was quoting back to Daniel 7. He was saying, I'm the one Daniel prophesied about in Daniel 7, and I'm going to read it right now. Daniel 7, 13 to 14 says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. God is still on the throne. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and we can have confidence in that. He's given all dominion and glory and power. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you are on the throne. Jesus, when we stumble, when we are going through difficult times in our lives, we, just, we can trust and we can know that you are on the throne. You are above all. So Jesus, help us to disciple others. Help us to disciple our kids well in a way that points to you and says, no, whatever is going on, God is still on the throne. Help us to be people that have that seated in our hearts, that we are people that trust that God is still on the throne. He is still on the throne. We love you so much, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.